Welcome to episode 95 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have one of the most recognisable voices in tennis. Kids between 10 and 14 should play very few tournaments. They should be allowed to develop. Um, They should be allowed to get their technique correct and not play as many tournaments. Now, once you get in at the round 10 or 11, 12, you're suddenly stuck in this ratings chase to keep your funding. So for me personally, the, the longer I have kind of been in this sport, I see that as a massive challenge for federations. And that was Mark Petri, known for his skills in the commentator's booth now, working for Sky TV over the years, Amazon Prime, ITV, BBC, match interviews on the court. But before that, people forget he was a top 100 ATP tennis player. He was head of men's tennis for the LTA, and he was also a young Andy Murray's tennis coach. Not to mention now he still remains keeping his hand in coaching. Not so long ago, he was Maria Sakari's tennis coach, and also his two daughters, who he's coached throughout the years, have now both got scholarships to American University. There's so many topics that we can get into. There's so many topics that we did get into. You're going to really enjoy this one. I'm going to pass you over to Mark Petchy. So, Mark Petchy, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's it's nice to have you on. I've been I've been thinking when can I get a hold of Petch? I've been looking on my phone. I've been saying I'm I'm sure I used to have his number when he used to text me for <laughs> losing a match somewhere around the world. But I, I didn't have your number anymore. So it's great to have you. And you can't go anywhere because you're stuck in a hotel room in Australia right now. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, that LTA number got changed, I'm afraid. But, uh, but I know you got it, so uh, I'm glad we're back in touch. Yeah, and it seems like the perfect time to be speaking to the tennis world because so many people are in, in quarantine. And obviously, I don't know what whether you see what's happening on the outside world. I guess social media does give you a little bit of insight. How, how do you feel the last few days have been for tennis as a whole in terms of the reputation? I think it's one of those situations, Dan, where obviously, you know, when you when criticism's put out there, it's the loudest. I think the uh, if we're being honest, I think the vast majority, the silent majority have actually come in and and got stuck in and, and, and have accepted their fate. But there has been a lot of moaning uh, to start with. And I think that it hasn't painted the tennis players in a great light here in Australia. And I think that the others are kind of getting getting tarnished with the reflection of the few that have been very quick to, to get on their social media channels at the start of this uh, quarantine period, whether it's about the 14 days without being able to get out of the room, whether it's about the food or whatever it is, rather than going on the back channels uh, to Tennis Australia and speaking about it privately. I think, you know, for me personally, there's there's always consequences. Um, there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a quite a business but Ray Dalio who writes about principles he, he set up the Bridgewater hedge fund one of the biggest okay. in the world um, and he always talks about second and third consequences from a decision and your decision to post something negative about Tennis Australia whether it's food or the quarantine that you didn't know about obviously has the knock-on effect to Novak it has the knock-on effect to Craig Tiley it has the knock-on effect to how tennis players are perceived and I think that's something that that hasn't been handled well by the players and I think it's just um, you know I think again from what I'm hearing there were lots of there was a call last year where 
probably only 20% of the ATP players jumped on the call to listen to what they had to say. So that's why you get this disparity between people that were very aware of the close contact rule on an airplane and people that weren't. And had they been aware, Novak wouldn't have had to write the letter. He wouldn't then have to spend time apologizing for trying to reach out and trying to rectify what he could see as a bad narrative for tennis um, and everything else. So yeah, not a great start. And you can understand why Australians and Victorians who have uh, been through such a tough lockdown feel the way that they do about what's, what's transpired. Yeah, no, very good patch. And I think, yeah, the, the, I had the Skopskis on actually on the on the podcast last night. And that was my my direct question to them. Did they know? Were they told of that rule? Because that's what it comes down to for me. Yeah. Where's, where's the negligence? Is the neg- negligence on Tennis Australia for not telling that rule? Or is the negligence on the players for not getting off their asses and, and going on that Zoom call? reading the emails and the documents. And one thing that came through loud and clear from them is the negligence is on the players, you know, and, and yeah. so then, then they all need to, they need to shut up, get on with it. And I think you've done a great job of that on social media as I, as I believe you do. I think you do a really good job of standing for those, those messages. I know you had a little bit of back and forth with some of the players um, which, but it's good because even off rec off, off record, when we were talking there, there's the media guys, there's, there's the stringers, there's the umpires, you know, there's so many of these people that are currently in Australia quarantining for 14 days, not complaining and getting on. The ecosystem of tennis is much bigger than a couple of players that were on an era playing. And I think getting that message across how lucky everybody is that the sport is happening, we're making a living out of it has been a good one. So well done to you for that as well, Petch. Yeah, I think, thanks. And I think that it's important for people to recognize just how important perception is right now. I feel like, you know, tennis, we're in a, we're very, you know, we're very much getting sort of crowded out in the entertainment business. We're a sport, obviously, but, you know, we've got to be very careful that we don't lose the profile that we have. We've been very lucky. It's been a real golden era with, with the stars that we've had on the both men's and the women's side. But, you know, we are getting to the twilight end of that. I know we've been saying that for a while, but we are definitely there now. And the players that are coming through and the, and the next stars that are going to take over tennis will survive. But how well it will survive and how well that will affect the downstream for somebody like yourself that runs an academy and the people that want to play tennis. We already see the knock on effect of this uh, tragedy, this pandemic in America. 60 plus college programs have already cut their tennis. You know, so already you're looking at almost 500 players that won't be able to go to college to play tennis. Does that affect pro tennis? Not, not necessarily. But what it does affect is those people perhaps playing social tennis which then affects your clubs which then affects your racket manufacturers because those rackets don't get bought and you, and it affects your court fees and it affects your balls the whole downstream effect of of negative press and 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 of these events not happening in the ecosystem of tennis is absolutely massive and that's why i think these players right now with with the ability to post instantly with their social media channels have to take a greater responsibility in terms of what they put out there there is an employer that's about to play pay you i know it's not everyone but let's be honest it's a vast majority of players are going to get a hundred thousand aussie dollars i know it's not everyone but it is a lot of them and and, mo- and a lot of them are going to get more than that yep. and now if you sat if you employed someone in your academy and they went on social media and they slagged you off for no good reason because they haven't really read the rules how long would you let them last in your academy? And that's basically the scenario that we've had here. 
And I think that, you know, from my perspective, it's just been disappointing, but it is a good lesson to learn for everybody heading forward through this pandemic. This year is going to be tough and everybody needs to be crystal clear on how they how they are communicated with, how carefully they read all the documents and jump on those calls. And when they think about saying, hey, isn't this cool to show some a lunchbox? Actually, it's not that cool. Go to the back channel, go sort it out. To pick up on one thing you said though, Petch, is there such a thing as negative press? Yeah, there is because this is a big deal here in Australia. This tournament, the players coming in through the, just the fact of, of what the Australian government at the federal level and obviously at the state level have allowed in terms of what uh, players coming in, uh, the absolutely mammoth um, logistical undertaking of the planes all over the world, the charter flights to try and keep the social distancing on the planes, um, what it took for the for the airline, for the companies that they used to try and get everybody here as safely as possible. The hotel that was at the last minute wasn't allowed to be used because of the penthouse people that live there and residences to then to find new hotels. This, this, this needed to be, in my opinion, a, a glittering sort of array of, of compliments of what an unbelievable job Tennis Australia have done and the Aussie government have done in terms of the luxury of bringing these players in when they've got so many Aussies stranded overseas. There have been families that have come in and doing what I'm doing with two kids running around a room this size for 14 days. You know, you just, for me, yes, I think there is such a thing as negative press. I really think that, you know, the players are going to have to work hard to, you know, and, and, and again, as I say, it is, it is the sort of minority, but the majority even are now going to have to work very hard to win these fans over. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of anger about how people yeah. have spoken. Yeah. It was a badly asked question by me, Petch, and that you, you've answered very well in that way. I think where I was coming from with it was when we talk about, and, and this is almost number 100 of podcasts that we've done. And it has been quite yep. a common thing that's come up around tennis really is in a, in, a, in a scary place. You know, the big stars are potentially on the way out. You know, the sport has been hit hard by COVID. There, there's virtual space that's coming in. There's so many more things coming in the entertainment world. It's a Netflix Spotify world for these kids are they you know how do we get people attracted to tennis so I guess where my question's coming from if we take Bernie Tomic's girlfriend now yeah who, who makes some stupid comment about hair and you know all of this mm -hmm. kind of stuff what it is actually doing is it's hot property right now the Australian Open is a real hot property topic that is getting people seeing tennis and it's and it's opening the world of tennis now it's not being done necessarily in a, in the right way i know that you know but if if everything had gone swimmingly everyone had turned up let's take a dan evans i've not heard anything about dan evans so he's not he's not in my world right now in terms of what he's doing in Australia. He's become so, a yoga teacher to the to the players. Yeah, that's the little thing that came out, which is amazing. It's a great story in itself. But I guess what I'm saying is almost that bad press is almost opening the world and, and having tennis at the forefront in some ways, which is where my question around is there such a thing as bad press, I guess. I mean, I know what you're saying and the kind of the atomic girlfriend situation, but you know, it's kind of you know, it's a, that on 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 a, in isolation is actually amusing. I mean, like yes. yeah. for most of us, it's an amusing. It's a sideshow. It's kind of where the world is. It's no different to like, 
you know, a lot of the reality TV shows people watch, they don't watch it because it's amazingly intellectual and it's going to worry if they, they watch it because it's a car crash. And, you know, the reality is, is that as in isolation, that's kind of what that was. I think my point being is there was a bigger agenda at the start of this in terms of public yes. health safety and not allowing COVID out into the community. And I think they let themselves down at the start, but yes. we can always we can always do better. And moving into the competition, you know, which we're going to do quite quickly. People are going to, yeah. people are getting a little bit sick of watching people hit balls against mattresses. And there's only so much of that that we can, that we can, that we can view. And I think we're all really excited to see that competition coming on the court. You must be re excited to see these guys and girls going at each other over the next few weeks. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think the big difference here, obviously, is we're going to get a minimum of 25% fans in, you know, there's, you know, we're still kind of figuring out what that number is. Nobody really knows exactly. It could be as high as 50. They were hoping potentially at one stage for 75%, but obviously the changes with the variant in the COVID and where we're at, we're not sure. I mean, maybe we'll get lucky and get to that sort of number, but that's, for me, Dan, that's going to be the biggest difference. We we were lucky that tennis happened last year. There were yeah. some great stories. There were some great crescendo moments as we got to the back end of these um, these events um, at the US Open, um, obviously at the French and everywhere else. But they were they were small moments. I've got to be honest. They were they were big because that what was on the line was super valuable in terms of the prizes. But the rest of the tournament, to be honest, without fans, it, it, it's not a great. It's a tough sell. It's a tough sell for everyone. It's tough for work on it. It's tough for the players and it's tough for the fans at home as well. So I think from, from my perspective, the one thing I can't wait to, to see is the fans back in the stadium here. And can you see past Novak Djokovic? Yeah, I think, I think I can, you know, I mean, I think this is a, I think obviously they've been getting a little bit of an, a better run. At, at this they're going to be a little uh, more prepared at the start line than ever before it is going to be one of the most unequal slams in terms of the starting position for many of these players I, I do feel as though the people in in 14 day quarantines that can't come out will surprise everybody and surprise themselves at how they're able to cope but um you know we'll obviously have to see but you know listen Novak starts the favorite he's obviously played you know his a game down here more often than not um but you know he's still got pressure he's he's still three behind uh, trying to catch catch them in the race. And I'm sure Roger and Rafa would far, rather be at 20 than Novak on 17. Um, and obviously, you know, ha having to chase them down. So, and, and you've got players that are coming into the, into the, into their kind of peak right now. Dominic, obviously team, he's obviously one, one that takes a bit of the pressure off his hardcore form has been unbelievable. I think Zverev's going to, going to have another good run here. I think Medvedev's looking great to pass. I mean, you've, you know, you're starting to get some players coming through that I, I feel that are going to feel as though when they walk on court, they got a chance. And, and I would say it's maybe a bit of a harder call on the, on the women's side right now. For sure. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always been a lot more open, hasn't it? Since obviously, you know, Serena's obviously the go-to in terms of, you know, the record and the pressure that she's feeling. And that looks like it's obviously had some sort of effect in, in recent years. Um, Osaka obviously playing some unbelievable tennis down here in the past. Um, she's obviously going to be the big, the big star that the WTA are going to pin their hopes on in terms of being that transcendent star, uh, star that can actually, you know, hold the tour. Um, but there's, yeah, there's always, for me, there's always 10, 15 women, I believe, that can can win the tournament. Yeah, well, we, we can't wait to get that started. But just uh, as as we do with the podcast, yeah. 
Petch, if you don't mind, and I know you're not that old. I think I think you've got ten years on me actually. But uh, I've got I'm fifty. I'm fifty last year. I raised my bat last year. So ten years on me. I'm four. I just turned. Yeah. And but can you, if you can go back? One one thing I've asked every guest that's come on. Obviously, tennis is our passion. It then has gone yep. into it might be media, it might be physio, it might be other kind of lenses and other parts of tennis. Where where did that passion and story start for you on the tennis side? It was definitely my parents. You know, my parents, every summer, they would play kind of social events. And again, it goes back to my early point about the downstream and the ecosystem. You know, they played a lot of sort of like fun seaside events in the UK and played mixed doubles, played tournaments. They played handicap tennis down there, like Love 30 you start at. And, and you know, loads of, they just spent, that's what they did. And they 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 hauled me and my sister around um, six or seven weeks. And you know what, you're a kid, you can go to the beach, which you do, but then your parents are playing on a tennis court and you basically go and, you know, you, you start hitting against the wall and, and eventually you start getting into it. And I lost all sports, to be honest, as I was growing up, I, you know, I played everything up until I was probably like 16 before I obviously started playing tennis a little bit more seriously. So where were you brought up then? A seaside in, town? No, no, that, oh. that, they went to the seaside towns. Okay. But we, no, I was great. No, there's no sea in Loughton in Essex. <laughs> You're an Essex boy. I can tell you that. Course. You're an Essex, an Essex <laughs> no. boy. Yeah, I, I, we don't see the coast there. You see it in South End, but you don't see it in and, and if you go back to then, because I know you were a decent junior, you played the Junior Grand Slams, you did that whole thing. I guess looking back now, how how serious was it? You know, how quickly did it get serious then? Or was it just that you were you were just kind of playing tennis back in those days? Yeah, a little bit just playing tennis. I finished A-levels um, at school. Um and yeah, I was offered to go to Bisham Abbey. Obviously, when that was started, um, decided that it wasn't the right thing for me to do. Um, and then obviously, once I got to 16, 17, and I was doing okay, sort of internationally, uh, junior wise, you know, you kind of feel like you've got to give it a go. I mean, there was a choice of going to university. U US university wasn't really on at that stage. No. If you were going to ask me my two regrets in tennis was number one is not going to a US university yeah. when I when I was 18. And my second one was when I had done okay, was not going to base myself in the US at that time as well and right, practicing. Okay. They're two of the, the two of the biggest regrets that I that I have. But at the stage I was coming through, the US college system was, wasn't really seen as a way to get yourself onto the tour from the UK. It was in the States, but we didn't really see it. It was almost like, well, you don't really want to play properly. It was, yeah. But even 10 years later, Petch, when I played, I remember coming back from the States and I think that's when you was starting to get more involved with the LTA. But I remember Jeremy saying to me, oh, Dan, you're st yeah. still playing tennis. <laughs> you know, Dan, I didn't realise you were playing. And and I came out of college and was I was making challenger finals on the doubles, you know, and yeah. I, I won a futures in singles. So it, it, it almost shocked people. Like, where, where have you been for four and a half years? Yeah. You know, so that was no. even 10 years later. Yeah, it was like going into the wilderness. And so, yeah. you know, but when I look back now, Byron Blackwin, who I was friendly with, he's from Zimbabwe, my wife's from Zimbabwe originally, they grew up together, Wayne Black, and then chatting about the experience that they have, you know, to go and play 60, 70 matches um, in college and, and and kind of, and grow up, you know, mature. I mean, that was a, you know, it's it's who you are at the end of the day as well. What's right for everyone. College tennis isn't right for everyone. It would have been good for me yeah. to have gone out there and matured and played tennis and, kind of grown up a, a little bit but you know to get out on the tour and I think this is one of the hardest things that people 
and it certainly affected me. I had a I had a good junior career in the UK, and I had an okay international like internationally. But the beatings you take in the first two or three years on tour are are not something that go away, and 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 they they're just scars that you pick at as you go through. And yes, you can come through it, but very few people actually do come through it unscathed. And and those beatings from a point of winning a lot to then suddenly not winning so much, that was a that was an education in itself that I was completely unprepared for. I yeah. did think that when I went on to tour, I would win more matches than I did in the early part of my career. Yeah. And I found that I found that very mentally uh, uh, scarring, I have to say. Yeah. And I think everyone that's in tennis apart from the superstars do and 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 i guess my my thought on that is how can we better educate and i I try we really try at the academy players to be better losers and i know that sounds a little bit negative but you know the example i use is federer's lost 46 percent of points in his career you know, and he's gonna yeah. he's arguably the greatest male player of all time. If we take your career, you were number 80 in the world, Petch. And I always you always speak of quite I whenever I hear you, you speak quite negatively about your tennis whenever I hear you. But you were a top hundred tennis player. It's incredible. Yet your record is win 35, lose 73 on the ATP tour. You know, so yeah. you you're winning one in three matches. You know, and I, and I think it's such yep. a it's such a reality of our sport. Yet it, it it affects players so much mentally. You know, so how do we how do we educate that better? Well, I think one thing is highlighting it is obviously let's not hide behind it. You know, that's you know that's one of the most important things. I think that um, failure is is pretty much with us our, our entire life. <laughs> we we live in a we live in a very much Photoshop world now with Instagram and, and, and social media platforms and these perfect worlds that people are living, but actually behind the facade, there's, there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of distress. And, and the more that people promote that they have a perfect life, the tougher it is for the people that are actually living in the real world to say, wow, my life's actually not that good. And that's a little bit, although we didn't have social media back then, is a little bit how I felt like, Oh yeah, you know, you're doing, you're playing tennis. You're great. Oh, that's amazing life. That's, I'm, lo- I'm losing one in I'm losing one in three matches. I mean, look, Jan Michael Gamble, I think, was 13 in the world. I think his win loss at the end was 50%. Yep. I mean, he, he won Miami. I mean, yep. you know, I, I think that part of the, the part of the process for the majority, as you say, your Andes of this world, your 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 Raffers and Novaks and Serenas, yeah, they're a different Britney. They don't have to wor- they don't have to worry about that kind of side of it. But for me, which is why I say I wish I'd gone to college, which is the same for maybe other players who if they don't want to go to college just want to play tennis professionally not to play too many matches is that you don't take that mental scarring and that baggage around with you year after year you don't you know you 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 actually learn to become a better player without getting beaten up so badly that when you actually are emotionally really mature enough then you get onto the tour and and actually you can hopefully win you know a little bit more than when you start i think it's a difficult balance which is you know which is you know, you, you've got to play to lo- and lose to learn. Um, there's no question about it. But this hiding behind, you know, and also saying to people, oh, yeah, it's a good thing to lose. It's not a good thing to lose all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to lose occasionally, Dan, but it's not okay to lose all the time because your self-esteem goes down the toilet. Absolutely. And, and that's, and I've struggled with it. I mean, there's no question. You talk about it like, okay, I got to 18. I genuinely have struggled with that when I stopped. I, I struggled to look back at my career 
and look at it with any any sense of success yep. that in my mind it wasn't and that and that's quite difficult you know that's that's actually a long process to get yourself through to say well actually it's not a disaster you yep. know it's not a disaster but when you set yourself up for these goals that you feel like you you, you could potentially reach but and you don't you're actually all right because you're in the majority you're the 99 percent that don't do it but you yep. don't feel like that when you walk no. away from the tour and I think it's it, that's why it's such a challenge to to teach it, because yeah, because the second you mention it's okay to lose and it's part of the process, you're seemed as a loser, not a winner. And exactly what you say, the, the reality is the losing hurts. It it it, it wears. It's where it wears and tears on the players. You know, it makes it difficult. And if you don't mind, if I just share a couple of quick stories. I had Dasha Kazakina on the podcast earlier this week. And Dasha was really interesting. She basically, as she said, she got to 30 in the world without really even thinking, <laughs> you know, 18 yep. years old. And then she maybe plateaued a little bit. Then she went up. Then she was age 20, 21, top 10. And she w- said she just wasn't, she wasn't ready to be that ranking. She wasn't mature. She didn't have the maturity. And she's almost had to have a two-year hard fall <laughs> to to learn yeah. all of those messages and listening to her the other night was so lovely and it, and, it, and it seems like she's got the mindset ready and don't be surprised if in 2021 she makes a bit of a move because her mindset seemed excellent and the other one was Xavier Melis who who Xavier is my age and he was brilliant because he, he was so good I mean he was so good yeah and, oh, he was unbelievable uh, he was and what he said is I just didn't lose enough. He said, so he said, when I was younger, I just didn't lose. He said, yeah. I won 87 practice matches in a row at Boletaries. <laughs> and and he won. I mean, I was when I remember playing him in the semi-finals of like a decent European event, and he beat me love and won. I mean, he's not, he's like yeah. he's he didn't, he's in first gear. And and he and he said in his on his reflection, he didn't become a Grand Slam winner and all of those things because he never learned how to lose. And, he, and, and, and and what came with that. And it came too late in his career before he realised and things kicked in. So I think it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a great subject because there is just no blue, there's no blueprint uh, for, for yeah. producing a tennis player. You know, I mean, I think you look at the federations around the world and, you know, you ask yourself, having been in the system, you, you're coaching players, you're producing players. It's like, well, what, you know, what, what is, there is no blueprint because, you know, at a, at a young age, you can't talent ID. You can't. You can see somebody that's got some hand eye, but what you can't see is what's inside. And and you're going to take so many haymakers to your head. The the majority of players. Uh, but the problem is, so many times we just look at the the, the players that are su- success, a real success by winning yeah. slams and tournaments. And everyone else is seen as like, oh, they're a bit, they're they're not so good. But they're the people that actually you're. We, you know, we're aspiring to actually produce as a coach and everybody else. But how can you tell me at 10 or 11 that that person's going to be willing to get smashed as many times as they're going to get smashed to then come out the other side of the washing machine and, and, and be able to handle it? Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's one consistency that we know from your era, my era, the next era, the next era, that's never going to change. You know, the, the, the large yeah. majority are always going to have to deal with losses in this sport on a micro level. You're going to have to deal with winning a match, but still probably losing almost 50% of the points. Is there any other things over your time as a player, coach, pundit, commentator that you would say has stayed true 
through the eras as a consistency within the sport? I, I mean, I think from a from a point of view at the top end, I think self belief. I mean, I, I unwavering self belief in uh, in 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 players, and I think no matter no matter what they're told, um, even if they're not doing that well, their their inner belief that they will they will be good, match with the talent that they clearly have, is something that I think is. I mean, I think that the game has changed. I think that there is a lot of differences from when we were playing, when I was star, I started with wooden rackets. So clearly there's, there's a massive change from that. But the self-belief that these players have at the top level is, is phenomenal for me. Yeah. And what about the big, big changes? I know the obvious ones of power, athletic ability, but what, any other more subtle changes, I guess, that, that you see in the game and even in the last five years, anything that you see jumping out? Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, if we if we get down into the weeds, I think it's it's actually use of data. I think that yeah. that's kind of one of the things that I find quite interesting with with the way that we're going. I think you, you look as you say, string technology has changed, the rackets have changed, so therefore the games changed, the speed of course have changed. You know, we've we've done that before, but. One thing that I've been quite interested in, I mean, I love the Hawkeye and obviously when I'm working as a pundit, you know, I use it an incredible amount and I think it's taught me an an awful lot. But there's a nice fine line, I think, in the modern game between going too into the weeds and staying back. I think very few players are are fantastic helicopter players. Very few players, especially early on, can take the information that you can see, Dan, as a coach and actually process that but still be able to play on their side of the court. And I think even at the top end, a lot of the time people are talking about finding like an edge and it's, but it's a small edge, you know, Novak obviously serving big down the tee on the ad side and, and occasionally on the juice, but we know he serves big down. The, he changed that because he felt like the numbers were stacking up against him for his kicker into the, into the ad side and he wasn't winning as many points. So he felt like he needed to change something up. The data suggested that, that he was getting beaten on that serve a bit too often. And so he needed to do something different, but that's a subtle change. I think that there's a, there's a rush for the, to mine this data and tell players like, this is what, but you and I both, this is still a very instinctive sport. There are still, there are still three options. There's actually, there's, there's eight options almost when you hit serve, it can be T body wide. It can be a kicker. You can hit slice. You know, yeah. you can't say every single time on a big point what that person's going to do. And so to leave enough room for that player out there that you're helping or, or you're as a player looking at the data to still be able to be instinctive and, and work out and play, I think that's that's going to be a very fine line for a lot of the coaches and the players because there's almost this sense that the data will tell you how to play them and all you have to do is do that. But that's, that's not true. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's another fascinating subject. And I think for, for me, Petch, it's the, the, the data and the real kind of progression that's going to be made is with the coaches and the, and the coaches' ability to interpret yeah. yet communicate to the person that they have and the, and the athlete that they have on that day. <laughs> If I'm coaching you and my job to coach you, I need to know you bloody well. And one morning I might see those eyes not looking at me at the breakfast table and think, right, today's not a day for me to get into too much detail. Whereas on other days you might be like a puppy dog looking and trying to lap it up. And and I'm a big believer in the way the world's going with data. I think it's brilliant. I think tennis got to it too late. 
you know, and I think it's it's a fascinating subject. But at the same time, and you said it very well, tennis does come down to moments <laughs> and and that ability. And 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 it was I was actually speaking to James Trotman off air on this and we've had a we had a lot of subjects uh, around this during the lockdown and we were talking about a, a conversation he'd had with Andy which I'm sure James and Andy won't mind me sharing and and Andy's comment was are you telling me Roger Federer at 1530 can't change and hit the t-serve rather than hit the wide serve that he might normally yeah. hit you know come on you know and and that comes from instinct feeling is somebody nudging and the other example i use on that is the federer djokovic final that we all well i think 99 percent of yeah. us all couldn't watch in the end when when federer didn't win but if you look subtly at 40 15 when he was serving for it Djokovic actually had predicted that he was going to serve wide and he actually took a step wide. And, and if Federer had actually hit the T serve within a yard of the sideline, it was an ace, <laughs> you know, and, and that maybe I would imagine at that time, Djokovic was taking a lot of data. Federer serves wide on the big serves. And I think it's so dangerous that that information gets passed on to players because, because of the instinct and the moments. But uh, where, where does data go next? Uh, where does data go next? I think I think it could go quite big in gambling. I think spaces on the court where you hit your winner, you know, you you break up the court into different segments of the court, and people are gonna kind of gonna use it in that way. Uh, for tennis, like for tennis, for the amount that I've seen, and I've seen obviously not just Hawkeye. There's Playside. You've got Dartfish. Some of it for me is just too much. I mean, some of it for me is just becoming like, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's almost to get out of jail free card for a coach. You know, yeah. it's like, Oh, look, you know, that's after the match, I can oh, look what they did. It's like, well, like you just said about Roger, where is he going to serve at a certain place or Novak? You don't know for sure that Novak's going to come in with the 118 bomb second serve, but you've got to be ready for it. Cause he might, you know, so, you know, but he could easily put in a 90 mile an hour kicker out wide short. So, you know, I, for me, I think it's, it's an issue where I do like it. And where I don't think it's used enough is on the practice court. I, I hate, because I know it's available, like play site and things like that. I, I personally hate being on a court if I'm in a session where I can't tell the player that was a 75 mile an hour forehand, that was an 85 mile an hour forehand. Because, because otherwise it's just, you're guessing as a coach, you're feeling it. You're like, oh, that felt big. But you don't know exactly what that player felt when they hit that ball. And you to be able to say to them, that's what it was. Here it is, crystal clear. Just gives them the inner confidence. Okay, so that's what I need to do. And especially for, for players that are developing, for, yeah. for people between 18 to 22, to have an understanding of the pace that you can play with and be consistent rather than just winging it on a practice court, for me, is is absolutely, absolutely, because, you know, it, it's so important because there'll be a day where you fit in the ball great and a day that you're not but if you can just start putting numbers in you can put spin rates in you can put the height over the net that you're there those are the sort of things I think that can turn practices that are going south and we've all had a few of those into something that you you can pull out of the dive and actually end up with something really productive from it and I, I I'm a big believer and if I were working with someone um I would I would be very adamant on trying to be on a court with that kind of ability that you can see what's going on all the time. And how accessible is it from a from a pricing point? 
Is that is that something that maybe? No, is I, I mean, that's what's holding it back. Yeah, I mean, that's what's holding it back. I mean, the, you know, they have it obviously at the NTC. Um, it wasn't working for a long time. Um, you know, again, you've got maintenance on the on the on the on the system and everything else. When I was there in the summer, um, but you know, from a from a federation point of view, if you are one of the lucky federations where you do have money, for me, it, it's just a must. It's not about you know, it's not yeah. just about being able to stream live matches. For me, it that it's more important as a coach in that in that window. And I probably could kick it back to 16 to 22 in that window there to be able to develop a player with that kind of knowledge. Amazing. That for me is invaluable. I mean, that for me, if you if you don't have it on every core, if you have the ability to, to have it on every core, then that's an issue. No, very good. I, w- I would completely agree. And if there's anybody out there that wants to sponsor Soto Tennis Academy with that, yeah. <laughs> then, then my, my, my details are at the bottom of the podcast. It is, it's my, it's my dream. It is. And, I, and that's where actually not when you don't work in a federation and you're not involved in something like that, I, I, I might be opening a can of worms on this, on this subject as well, but you, but you value those things more. Like, yeah. you know, if I, if, if, if I was like, like I'll give an example. When I worked at Edgebass and Priory High Performance Center, I didn't value, I did value Louis Kaya. I'll always value Louis, but I didn't necessarily yeah. value coaches coming in to do the CPT days. It was like, yeah. oh God, we got someone from the LTA coming to be a bit of an arse for the day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That type of thing. Whereas now I would absolutely love to have, you know, people yeah. coming in and, and giving their days. And, I, and and it's actually, it's part of a bigger subject. And I don't want to get in that big subject, but I do want to move you into British tennis because you were in that role. But it is part of a bigger subject that I think is the issue with British tennis, that there's it, yeah. it too, too much is given. Too much is given too soon. It's it's there. Players don't really value or or fully understand if they want to be tennis players yet. And, and, and because of the kind of bigger budgets that they have, I think that creates that environment. So what's your reflections? Obviously, you were head of men's tennis when I was trying to play tennis. I wouldn't even say I was playing it, but I was trying yeah. to play tennis. What are your reflections from your time in that role? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, it was a real it was a real eye-opener for me. I think there were two big things for me back then were ratings. Um, number one, obviously, is juniors. And my big pushback was against counting losses in, and I kind of felt like we were creating a generation of, of players that, that were just saddled with fear, you know, because not only do they lose the match, but then they lost extra yeah. points on their rating. And I just, for the life of me, could never understand why anyone thought that that was a good idea to, to uh, already emotionally fragile kids who have got a lot of pressure, probably coming from different directions, that we're going to add some extra pressure that if they lose, you know, they're going to, they're going to drop points if you play somebody lower down. So that, that really bothered me at the start and I couldn't win because the argument was that there were a few players that were playing too many matches. I'm like, well, you know, this is, this is, this is a meritocracy. These people are independent contractors. If they want to play that many tournaments, we can tell them not to, but that's kind of up to them. They'll go to France if they want to play anyway. So went in and it was a bit like okay well we're trying to run almost like a crash yep. it's like you know this is a this is we're trying to build warriors and and you're not going to build a warrior who walks onto court going god if i lose this match i'm also going to lose this and i'm like that yep. you know it doesn't happen in premiership doesn't happen on the main tour you don't lose extra points if you lose the match you just yep. lose the match you don't gain anything but you don't lose more 
So that was that was the first thing that I thought, but didn't win that. I, I guess you're probably aware of how many kind of events I eventually managed to get on on the domestic yep. scene. And, you know, obviously I went in, um, I was given a budget for the players um, and, and I was doling it out um, left, right and centre, trying to sort of keep everyone happy, which was an impossible task. And a bit like you said, you know, too much is handed out. You you are giving stuff out. And I was like, this is just mental. A, I'm on the phone 90% of the day trying to like talk to people about why they should get funding. And actually, I can't see everyone enough. I can see everyone, but I can't see everyone enough yeah. to, to be able to judge if they deserve the funding or whatever. So my argument to the LTA at the time was, right, let's just let's just bin this budget that you've given me, put all of that money into new tournaments. Let's go and get another hundred grand to put on as many as we kind of can. And also the knock on effect there is these centers are going to get business. You're going to get food and beverage. The stringer's going to get some money for the week. You know, the hotels are going to get a bit of an uptick, B&Bs. And that was kind of my thing. Then listen, whoever's good enough here is is going to come out of this domestic scene and they're going to be able to then justify us funding them and potentially their personal coach rather than taking them away from their personal coach actually incentivizing a coach to stay with a player uh rather than leaving their account because you know you know what it's like most times the, the coach is going to say well why am i going to go with you take the risk because they're going to take the player away and that's my academy is now suffering because i haven't been there so there were lots of reasons why i believe that a strong domestic scene yeah is for the best but if you're asking me for number one it's because the cream will rise to the top and the best competitors ultimately will have two or three years to sort themselves out and if they're talented like i mean dan came back obviously from where he was at at the you know club oblivion at that time you know and 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 he had those tournaments to kind of get himself back to a ranking and propel him forward and, and he's changed his life absolutely and would your thoughts have changed on that now or would you still have that as a philosophy that you think should happen? Oh, I was gutted when they got rid of the tournaments. Yeah. I mean, gutted. I wasn't involved, obviously, because I left in the middle of 2006 with, uh, 2005 with Andy. Um, but I was gutted on a personal level. I, I, I just, you know, to, to change a system, to change a, a way of doing something is not a, it's not a one year. It's like football managers. It's, it's not fair. You know, you, and yeah. especially if something as fundamental as that, that for me was a minimum of eight years. And, and, and if I was given the chance, it was a 15 year project to build those futures into challenges, into something substantial. It was a, it was a long-term vision. We were fortunate. I was fortunate that I had David Felgate working at the time that, that believed in what I wanted to do. Um, and he pushed hard for me to, to get those tournaments, but it, it was never going to change British tennis in two years. You know, it was going to take, look at Italy. It took them almost, it, it took them nigh on 15 years from when they started in 1990 with the amount of futures and challenges they put on. We just haven't given it a chance. And I'm, and I'm not sure we are going to give it a chance because the people that took all the tournaments away are still there. So, so clearly their fundamental belief is that we don't need domestic tournaments because they allow it to happen. Well, the players I've had on the podcast the coaches I've had on the podcast that are real tennis people on the ground front line all say that the funding system should be done through domestic international tournaments. That's, that's the, so, so what you were doing 
20 years ago, 25 years ago, still very much rings true with many, including myself, that that is the, the most effective way to use a budget <laughs> to say off you go lots of tournaments if you're any good you'll make your money through the tournaments with less less travel money and that's that's your funding that's that's what's that's what's happening you know and so i think in terms of a system i think there's lots of people that completely agree with that and in terms of trying to bring that through obviously we hear LTA, 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 this LTA that it's kind of a it's, it's such a negative connotation with that unfortunately for a lot of good people that i believe do work there as well yeah but you know what what are the true challenges when you're in there what are the true challenges of the job you've touched on it there having to deal with a lot of phone calls dealing with kind of stuff that's not really moving stuff forward any other challenges that you would reflect on yeah and i'll get i'll circle i'll get back to that i'll circle back the other thing in terms of fundamental belief that i have now is that we should that the kids between 10 and 14 should play very few tournaments okay. they should be allowed to develop um, they should be allowed to get their technique correct um, and they should they should there and not play as many tournaments now so much of the funding you get into the system you can't get out so once you get in at around 10 or 11 12 yes. you're suddenly stuck in this ratings chase to keep your funding so for me personally the, the longer i have kind of been in this sport i see that as a massive challenge for federations because their numbers are really plumped up by the matches that are played at a junior level they get loads of matches played there and obviously we see the dive off the cliff when kids get to 16 and 18 and leave the sport so if they cut tournaments at that level they're going to suddenly look well how many matches are these kids playing but for me personally tying it in so early stops these players becoming the best versions of themselves because they're so nervous about staying in the ratings chase that they don't become the best yep. players. So that on that topic is 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 kind of how I how I see it and perceive it. A quick it. one, Petch, In- on that. A quick one on that before you move yeah. away from that. What if so if I if I take the Spanish system, yeah. Players do compete in those ages quite a lot, but they're not strategically competing. They're competing as yep. part of a as part of a development plan. So, would you have would would your opinion on not competing at that age be linked to the strategy part that adds the pressure and and then gets you protecting something, or would it be? I know you mentioned the technical changes. If if so, basically what I'm saying is the Spanish system where they do compete a lot at that age, but it's not in a pressurized way linked to funding. Do you think that's okay? I think, yeah, I think in, in, in essence, I think that's okay. I still think as long as you're giving enough time to the technique and you're definitely figuring out what your what that individual is like as a person in terms of the emotional stress they feel at a young age, even playing matches where people say they don't care and they don't matter, but actually when they get home, the parents are going like, what are we spending all this money for? You know, like you're not winning a match. So as long as that isn't happening, then I am for it. Yes, play, kids want to compete. And, and I do believe that team competitions are great at that age as well. I do believe that the more fun you can make those, those matches. Yes, tying it to funding is a disaster, in my opinion. We've lost yeah. so many great kids. And we've, we've kept kids who have become mediocre players because they haven't been allowed to, 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 to fix the flaws in their game that have stayed with them all the way through. So, yes, as long as you don't tie it, I do believe that we should have more trust in the coaches and the, uh, and the clubs in the UK where the funding goes to those clubs and they are the ones that are producing the players. And therefore, again, it takes away the direct funding. It gives more power um, 
as well to the coaches. They can, if a player is messing up, they can be like, hey, listen, you're not getting free coaching for a while. You, you know, sort yourself out. Whereas if, if the player's getting the money too often, yeah, then the coach is actually on the back foot. So that whole structure for me is, is a little bit flawed and I think it can be, can be worked through in a better way. But you have to stick with it for such a substantial amount of time. Yeah. And unless we do that, you will not see the change in the sport. Great answer, Pet. She didn't answer my question, but it's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, although I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. Coach de- coaching development, coach coaching, coaching license in the UK. Yeah, that, and that was one of my big bugbears. So, yeah. and I, I think there's some great pe- there's some great people on it. I think that there's some great knowledge on it. I think there's um, there's definitely stuff that people have uh, uh, can learn, and you can learn all the time. I've, I do some stuff for Nielsen Active Holidays, and I've I've learned a ton of stuff through RPT Europe, uh, especially at the the beginner level as well. Even though I've got two girls that I've I've coached with somebody else, a, a lot of, a few other people along the way, but I've I've learned a lot through that. I I've never felt while I was there, I've never really felt that it's as beneficial as it should be. It, it, it's very much coaching by box ticking. Oh, they know that they've done that they've done that coaching as you you say you 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 need to feel it you you gotta you gotta you've got to know the basics you've got to understand some technique you've got but you you can't make every player the same as some technique works when even you think it doesn't uh some technique looks great and actually is shocking uh when actually the the final product so you you have to look at the outcome not just the 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 production but you also got to feel it and 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 i don't think that there's enough of that being taught it's just this is how you do it. You've got your coaching license. You've got your points. And for me, it's too quick in the UK. I mean, it was my my big thing. Was we're we're enticing too many people that are making good money who are super average. Yes. In you know that that does for me. I'm like the course is too easy to pass and make 30, 50 grand a year. It and but they're the ones that are getting channeled at the the. This is their first kind of hit of tennis. This is this is the people that we're hoping are going to make our champions. But if you can pass a course in the time that it was, and then start coaching, I was like, that's just too quick. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's too few hours. You don't, you you can I'm a, I am a way better coach now than I even was when I was working with Andy. Yeah. You know. So I've learned so much more in that time, even since then. And some of these people that are coming out of these courses and then they're in the clubs doing that. I'm like, the coaching course needs to be tougher because then I believe you'll attract the right right type of, there are some unbelievable people in British tennis, yeah. but there's also a lot of people that have got into it pretty comfortably. Yeah, no, very good. And I think I would add to that as well, Petch. And Nick, we had Nick Wheel on the, on the podcast and he talked about, you. obviously he's taking care of the coach education and development side now. And I think he's more of a tennis guy that he, on the ground, which I think is going to be really interesting how he brings that through. But he fully understands that, to be coaching to a high level with high level players, it is all in. It's all in. <laughs> there's no, there's no. I want to do a bit of this and a bit of that. If you're, if you're spending twenty five percent of your time working with a national level kid, but seventy five percent doing other stuff, and you're never going to tournaments, you're not an all in tennis coach, you know. And and and, and I and I'm a big believer that we need to talent ID coaches, and and I think I think talent ID coaching based on commitment being one of the biggest talents because I think doing that and then getting them to sit on a shoulder of a Mark Hilton who's maybe spending 30 weeks on the 
you know, get them to sit on a on the shoulder of a Craig Veal who's working with Arthur Ferry and going to do all of these tournaments. Get them to sit on a shoulder of Ben Harron who's spending time at grade four, grade five ITFs and top tennis Europe events and, and get them to really learn, learn on the road because it's, it's not for everyone. And in fact, I would say it's for very few people, you know, this, this world of it's for very few people. Oh, it's, I mean, you'd say about all in, I mean, I, when I finished playing, I mean, my first job was through an athletics management company, an amazing um, guy, Kim McDonald, who sadly passed away when he was 45. But, you know, he coached a load of the Kenyan runners. Sonia so he was just a, he was a beautiful human being, an incredible mentor. Um, owe him a lot in terms of how my post-tennis life went, because I think had it not been for him, things would have looked very different for me. Um, but, um, you know, I was away, I was away eight eight months, nine months that year. I mean, I was working with a Croatian and I was away that, that much. Um, yeah. And, and, and as you say, it's, it, it's pretty, it's pretty testing on your, your family life at that stage as well. And, and you're not getting paid unbelievable money yeah. at that stage as well. You know, they can't afford to pay you incredible money. Um, so, you know, this is a, you know, you're, you're trying to make this thing work, but when you talk about being away, and all in oh my goodness i mean yeah you i my my daughter has a story which is kind of funny now but kind of wasn't funny at the time yeah. was uh she basically ran on a court at surbiton where neil broad was playing who's our good friend and and everything else and literally ran on the court and said daddy <laughs> <laughs> she had seen him so much more over the course of that year than she had seen me and he picks up the phone to me and he said hey bud you need to come home this is this is not a good thing and I'm like yeah you know it was but but I never saw myself as successful enough out of tennis as a player to then be privileged enough to stick a pair of headphones on and go and call tennis matches and never worry sitting there that I had enough credibility you know, and I still feel that every day that I put a set of headphones on in the commentary box that I'm lucky to be doing it. And should I be doing it? And I'm always being racked a little bit with this kind of, you know, fear of inadequacy in terms of my ability to do the job. Um, uh, some of it comes from failing an English O level as well first time. <laughs> so that also scared the life out of me uh, that you're going to get fined out. But, but I felt that I needed to do it because I just felt like it, it wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't enough to have a right to go and sit in a commentary box and pass judgment at times, which you have to do, unfortunately. And there is definitely a day in my future where I'm going to be very happy that I don't have to pass an opinion on a tennis player or in a situation or anything else. And the sooner it comes, the better for me personally, but it is what we have to do when we work on this side of the fence in this, in this industry. But, you know, from, from my point of view, that's why I went into coaching because I didn't think I was strong enough to take over and do a full-time role in commentary. That's very, very humble, Petch, and to, to share with that. And not that you need my validation and not that I would sm put smoke up your backside yeah. for the sake of it, but I do... I know you wouldn't. You do a great job. You know, I really do. And I, and I and I always thoroughly enjoy listening to your commentating. I think you call it as you see it. And, and uh, out there, I think there's a lot of guys who do a good job, but for me, you do really stand out. So um, take, take from that whatever you, you will. And it, as, as we do talk about your coaching, and I have, again, to share a little story, and I don't know if you remember this, but when you were head of men's tennis, Luke Milligan took, yeah. took a group of us to Jamaica. 
and uh, and off we went. Well, to I, ja- off- I don't know if I don't want to hear this story. <laughs> so off we went to Jamaica. Red stripe. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? It, it, that was actually something that was I was tarred with as a player, but I was I took I carried a bit of weight, but I took care of myself on that side more than people realized maybe playing doubles with David Sherwood actually was a little bit kind of that took me down with him um but but as we were there and we had a successful trip relatively I mean more so probably on doubles than singles but I was playing a singles match I think it was maybe week two of a four-week trip and I basically tanked a return at love foot at 40 love down or you know someone was serving and I scanned it. I hit the back fence off a return. And Luke Milligan, the little snitch, um, Luke Milligan, <laughs> Luke Milligan told you about this. And the next day yeah. you, you called me to let me know that my funding had been taken away for the last two weeks of the trip because I needed to <laughs> learn the lesson that every point that every point counts and you can't just oh, gosh. returns in the back. That's why, that's why it should be domestic. I should have been there to see it happen. <laughs> but, you, but Petch, my reflection on that is I really respect you for that because that that message came across in quite a tough way, probably in my head, my selfish tennis playing head at that time probably cost me a thousand dollars or whatever it might have yeah. been. But I tell you what, my my big philosophies now are so strong around control the controllables, around day yeah. and day out, around every single tennis point has a story to it and is connected. And and I often use that story with the players that I work with. And and so so and, and I think sometimes as coaches we don't always get that that gratitude for, for, for our things. But if we stand true to our values and our philosophies, we can't go far wrong. So for the listeners, what what are your key philosophies as a coach and your the key value values that you've carried through? Uh. Good question. I mean, number one, and it's a bit of a cliche, but every day you can you can make something happen. Every day you can get something out of. That, yeah. That's my number one philosophy. Is when I, as a coach, um, and I don't think I did it as well as a player. Maybe maybe that's not just totally a reflection on myself. Um, but as a coach, I genuinely believe that no matter how bad your player feels no matter what it is, even if you have to cut the practice short, there's an ability to improve something, even if it's just, even if it's a drop shot, even if it's just running up to a short ball and being able to flick it cross court, something that you can see in their game that that you can get better every single day. I mean, obviously you get your hard days with lots of hard training and lots of hours and lots of balls and lots of repetition and, and you know, and everything else. But for me personally, I always believe that you've got to get off the court and something has to have either felt better or at least understood better from the yeah. player's perspective in terms of of their game, why why something isn't work and and fixing the problem. There there has you, you have to understand how to be able to fix the problem. And I think that's one of the things that's not always done, which I feel like I'm a better coach now, is yeah. being able to fix the problem. I think when you're younger, you kind of know what you want to see, but how you get from A to B is also a, a different issue. Um, and you can't cheat, you know, you, you can't cheat the system. One of the reasons I also like domestic tournaments was because, you know, you, you do hear the stories, you know, you get to you get to know the characters, you get to know. I mean, I'll go back and tell a story. When I was at one of the sort of the culture, when I was, we brought a lot of people to the NTC, as you know, um, 
which again, I think isn't a great thing because again, you feel like you're in a clique, you're in a group, you're in a, and we've had way too much of that in British tennis. And so even you could be very close to being in that little bubble that we've created, but you're just outside, but we still say you're great, but you still feel like you're outside. You know, there's no other way that you can feel, even if we bring you in for a few practice sessions, you still feel like you're outside, but the, but the sort of things that you, we were dealing with back there was one, there was one week where a player um, was just looking genuinely very tired. And, and obviously the stories out. Um, and I kind of knew what this player had been up to during the week at home in London. Um, but they were still coming in for a proper four hours on the court, training session and everything else. And this is what you deal with at times in the job as a performer, like in that direction. So I said to, I called the dad and said, look, your son's really not like training particularly well. He looks very tired. And his dad said, well, yeah, he's told me he hasn't been sleeping particularly well this week. And I was like, had a little grin to myself because <laughs> I knew exactly what had been going on. So I was like, oh, really? Yeah, he's not, not been for, yeah, just, uh, yeah. I've actually told him that he should probably have a couple of like shots of whiskey before to try and cool it like before he goes to bed. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like these guys are staying together in an apartment and that's the kind of advice he's getting. Meanwhile, I knew the guy's schedule had been sleeping at 11, slept, gone out, slept at 2 a.m., slept the next night had been 4 a.m., the next night had been 12. I'm like, well, how do you think he's going to feel good about sleeping if his pattern is like that? And, and there you're dealing with those excuses. No excuses. You know, you have control of your life. Yep. You have, we have control of what goes into our body. We have decisions to make. Some, some take a lot longer to overcome, you know, if you if you drink too much. You know, it's easy to say to yourself, like, I need to stop. But actually, to be honest, the, help, the whole process of actually getting that under control is a lot harder than people give it credit for you know that's why unfortunately you have rehab clinics there but you you have control of your career and you need to make some tough decisions and I think that you know from my point of view nothing's ever personal as well you know it hurts you know and I've and I've left jobs and I've been told to leave jobs and there's no question that it hurts but ultimately it's not personal. It's a decision in that moment that people feel as though they need to go on a different route or the company needs to go on a different route. If you can look back and go, I gave that absolutely everything I have, then you, can, you can't have any regrets. Very good. The listeners are screaming right now at me, Petch. I can hear them. They're, yeah. they're saying, you've spoken to him for an hour and you've not asked about Andy Murray yet. What are you doing? How Ask him about Andy Murray. So I'm going to give the listeners what they want, Petch. Yeah. You coached Andy okay. for almost a year. You took yep. him from 351 in the world to top 50 in less than a year. Yep. My first question, was that a success for you as a coach? Yeah, it's the one part of my life that I do look at as a success is my coaching career. I mean, both, you know, when I worked with Tina Pisnik, Sylvia Talaya, they, they, Sylvia started in the 90s, she got inside the top 20. Tina went from 150 to 50. Andy, obviously... Um, you've just done the numbers, worked with Maria Sakari recently, you know, she's obviously, you know, I feel like Tom Hill's done an amazing job with her as well, but I kind of feel like where she was in 2017, definitely feel like I helped her out a bit. So, yeah, that was, was a big success. He was always going to be a great player, you know what I mean? So you can always look at it. I, I feel like I helped him navigate that particular segment of, of his career effectively. He was in a pretty bad place, funny enough, before Queens. I mean, he... He really had left his coach. He was pretty down about his tennis. Um, I think my energy, my love for the game, his obviously love for the game, his talent 
was a really was a really great mix. And and we'd known each other for about eighteen months before that. To be fair, Dan, I'd flown out to Casal Sanchez and seen him there. Mm-hmm. I had I'll openly admit it. Opened the checkbook at the LTA and said, right, whatever it's going to take to make you feel calm, to get your training done, you're going to make it. We need to give you the best ability to to make it. Um, whatever that whatever that will be um, so we had a connection and obviously Judy was doing an amazing job um, you know navigating both sons careers um, so there, there were a lot of consequences I talked about it right at the start of this podcast in terms of first second and third consequences yeah. in, in in my relationship with Andy there were lots of consequences that that made it go well I wasn't looking to coach him but I'm certainly happy I did and when it ended the I guess the the word on that in the media was you yeah. know, Murray stated it was a hard decision, but you had a difference of opinion. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it it's fair that, you know, I, I was fortunate. I mean, again, another consequence of, of the decision was that, you know, I was working at Sky at the time as well before Andy asked me to work. And then they promised that I could go back to, you know, a, a, a job if, you know, if it, if it ended, um, and I guess I was in a luxury position, really, which maybe ultimately was better for Andy. Uh, certainly wasn't better for me at the time. But it was my job was to tell him what I felt he needed to do to be Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal at the back end of a major. Uh, you know, they're, they're equally as talented. They're equally as athletic. They're equally... Um, you know, as, as competitive. Um, and at that stage, obviously, Rafa and Roger were, were winning majors. So they also had that advantage that they'd already been there and done it. And he hadn't. So I guess that it went so fast from him being 350 to being inside, you know, the top 100, you know, that happened in the space of three months. You know, I mean, he literally from Queens to Bangkok, he was inside the top 100. Um, and I guess in some ways that was, you know, it was it was incredible. But it was also created the conversations that you're going to have with a player of his quality a lot sooner in our relationship when perhaps some of the work hasn't been able to be done um and yeah so uh, yeah i was very adamant that i felt that he couldn't solely run to to beat players at that at that stage um and listen he uh, you know he is the boss you know at the end of the day he needs he's the one that's playing the match not me he needs to feel comfortable with his strategy he needs to feel comfortable with me and you know and at that stage he felt like he needed a new direction and you know what he was proved right his career went his career went stratospheric so that he didn't make a bad decision and you know what you know our relationship is still great to this day um and i only look back at it with great memories i believe honestly authentically I tried to do the right thing for his yep. career at that particular stage. If I hadn't have had the opportunity to go back and work in the media again, could I have been so open and so honest? And um, cause I knew obviously where the potential end was going to be because of the conversation. Um, I don't know, but you know, that I, I did it with his best. Well, the only thing I've ever done for him is in his best interest yep. and people can judge it on that at the end of the day. And I think what you say there, Petch, is again, <laughs> potentially open up another big topic, but Lendl, I've always thought this about Lendl. Lendl 
could say Lendl was there to take Andy from three or four in the world to number one in yeah. the world. Now Lendl could say what he wanted to say because he didn't mind losing, not having the job, you know. And, and there's a power shift, and and I think that's yeah. always the problem in tennis, it, that when the coach needs the job, the power is on the wrong foot, and it's then hard to get down to nitty gritty because you won't say it, but what you're saying there about Andy is the same thing that happened with Lendl and him. And Lendl was very clear that Andy needed to play higher territory to not get bullied by Djokovic if he was going to become someone who won Grand Slams. And at first, Andy didn't agree with that, so they split. (laughs) Nine months later, they got back together. And if you look at Andy at that year where he was number one in the world, he is playing a more aggressive game style. I'll never forget the graphic that I saw in Madrid and he was working on second serve returns, and he was working on being inside the court. And it might have been yourself, whoever it was, bringing it through on Sky. It was, he didn't hit one second serve return in that whole tournament where he didn't have both feet inside the baseline. So so he had got to that point in his career where he absolutely was buying into. And now he might have been able to be the retriever, the runner to get to four or five in the world. But ultimately, you were right in what your thoughts were for him to be a multiple Grand Slam champion. He had to play a, a, a little bit more of an aggressive, higher territory brand of tennis to become that multiple Grand Slam champion. So uh, I think, again, all the power to you that you that you stuck to your guns and had those conversations. Yeah, and again, it's, you know, it's consequences. It's one thing to say to Andy at that stage of his career where, you know, it's always easy in hindsight, isn't it, to say, well, he thought he was going to, yeah, he thought he was going to be a, a big success. But at the same time, you know, he's still unsure he's been losing matches and challenges prior to queens he's still trying to create a career um get himself in the world's top 100 get himself in the mix against these players get on the match court against federer in bangkok but just to say andy you need to play more up the court you need to play higher tempo tennis you need to use you know you need to do more that that's a process you know that's that's not yeah it's uh, you know his footwork may not be you know he may not feel comfortable that you know he might sit there and go yeah you're telling me to do this but my feet don't feel like they're in the right place you know I feel like I'm rushed that's why things take time and that's why you see so many breakups in tennis is because you get to that point that juncture and whether you're in the fortunate position where you don't need the job and you can kind of say what you think and then you go to work on it but just because I'd said it doesn't mean I was the guy to necessarily be able to tell him how to do it you know and it may be that we went he went through six months with me trying to work on it and we came out of that side and it was brilliant could have gone through six months with me and i screwed it up and as i've always said the one thing i never did with them was screw it up yeah very good very good and to move to you've obviously got a lot of passion for andy and that's all always come true as well um it's actually a bone that i i want to pick with you petch yeah it was I, I was fortunate enough to, to do a little bit of commentating back in 2012 completely yep. loved it and i remember I commentated on five live for an Andy Murray match and you were commentating on Sky. It was against Feliciano Lopez on Louis Armstrong. And and I came out the booth and I was like, I found it really, really difficult because what I wanted to say was, Andy, stop being a baby. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. And I was thinking, (laughs) 
I know Andy, he's going he's gonna to hear that I've said that and he's going to be on me. He's going to absolutely be on me. Yeah. And you came out and you actually had a very diff- different opinion to me on that match. I remember thinking the quality was low. Lopez choked, should have had the match. Andy got a bit lucky. And I remember you came out and you were like full of enthusiasm. What a great, it was an amazing match. And I was like, I'm sure when we watching the same match, which I, I think is also the beauty of commentary as well. Yeah. You know, you know but how how challenging has it been commentating specifically on Andy over the years when he does give us moments where it's like, oh, come on, Andy, how's that been? Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess obviously I'm like a massive fan. So I suppose that, you know, there'll be people out there saying, well, you need to sit in a commentary booth and you need to be completely unbiased and you need to call it as you see it. You've also got to look at the other side of it as well. Um, yeah, you can be as honest as you like and you can say what you think and you can be as negative as you like, which I don't think you need to be with somebody that's been arguably our greatest sportsman of the last decade. Um, but you also, as a TV company, need to have access to these people. And if you're going to be yeah. the ones doing the interviews with them, if you go and sit on there and you absolutely berate them for, for stuff that people think is terrible, you're not going to get access. So you're hurting yourself. So people need to understand that you, you if you're working and you are interviewing and your company is paying a lot of money, they do not want to not have access to absolutely. that person. That is a fact of life. And people yeah. can say, oh, you should have to say it. But if you don't have any interviews, you don't have anything to go with, you're not going to get it. So... Has, has that been a balancing act? Not really, because I've always, I've always just seen him as great. And yes, yeah. he's had his flaws, but then I look around me and I don't see anybody that doesn't have flaws. I look in the mirror in the morning, Dan, and I see somebody in front of me that has a lot of flaws. And I just don't find it that difficult. Yes, you can have an opinion that we can do things better, like the players here in Australia should have done things better. Could Andy have done things a little bit different? I, I, I said at a BBC meeting before he'd ever won his first one we were out having lunch in the days that we could all still do that um before he won his first title at the us in 2012 i said he'd win three majors that was that was my prediction for him he he's he's a unique talent he he is his drive that's come from the fire that burns within the inferno the the desperate desire to to do everything within his power to become the best ever player that he can be has also at times obviously as we've seen been a little bit of his enemy because because mm. that desire boiled over into a way that against the very best of times he just hasn't quite been able to 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 finish them off but boy oh boy would you how could you really criticize it as a, as a yeah. career as a human being as a as a tennis player so has it been difficult in all honesty not not really for me no and two two people that you've certainly got more passion for even than for Andy Murray and for tennis, uh, your, your daughters, you know, who, who also have gone down a tennis journey, both of them now in us college. How, how's yeah. that been being a, being a tennis dad? Good question, Dan. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it certainly wasn't my wife's and I's choice. She obviously traveled with me a lot when I played, she comes from a tennis background. Um, but we were like any parent, you know, we were in a fortunate position to give our kids an opportunity to play all sports. And, uh, and they did, you know, they played, they played hockey, they played, you know, they did gymnastics, they did, they did athletics, they, they played tennis. When we moved to Cape Town, they, they surfed a bit. They, you know, we, we try to, we try to give them a chance. They played golf. They, they did everything. I, you know, at the end of the day, they chose tennis. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I did not want them to play tennis. 
Okay. I, I mean, it, for, for me personally, that was, it was like a nightmare. Um, I'd done it. I, uh, I kind of knew how tough it was. I knew our holidays were going to be taken up just sitting at tennis tournaments, watching them play tennis. Um, uh, that's not really what I wanted for my wife or I. We'd, we'd been immersed in the sport for so long. You know, it basically means that you work on it. You don't, even your holidays are tennis and then trying to help your kids, which any parent that has had a kid that plays tennis is stomachly stomach churningly emotional. You know, it doesn't matter. It's two girls, they're 12, 15, 14. You know, they both lose on the same day having had match points. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, it's like, it's carnage emotionally. Um, phone calls I've had from my daughter in Zimbabwe when she's had match point. And, you know, your, 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 your world's turned upside down. And, um, but I've loved learning. I, I got to know Esteban Carril very well, who I'm sure you know, who works up in the north of Spain in your... I honestly believe he's one of the top five coaches in the world. And because my daughters play tennis, um, I went to see him with for a week. I paid to go and spend some time with them. I felt like they needed some help. And um, and, I, and I knew he'd done such a great job with, you know, obviously Roberto Batista and Joe. And I, I it was an eye opener to me. I think he's I think he's a bit of a genius, to be honest. And yeah. I think through that, that helped me from a commentator it gave me a, a, a fresh look at the sport and in the way that it helped so but from my daughter's perspective the one thing that I I apart from the journey that they're on at the U.S. college which is an amazing journey which is a phenomenal opportunity for them it's it's really built them backbone I talked to the, earlier on about how tough it was for me to go pro and lose and and how my self-esteem kind of was was pretty much shattered uh, a little bit earlier on um but for them going into that kind of slightly sort of more comforting environment, although at times it hasn't been easier for them, that journey through the juniors where they, my daughter, my eldest daughter was, she wasn't even 90th in the world under 14. She ended like top five in South Africa by the time she got to 18. She had a lot of losses. Um, it built backbone, you know, and, it, and it's built an appreciation that life isn't always going to, you know, give you what you want. And, and for that, I love the journey, you know, some of it I honestly hated and my wife hated, but for that, I, I appreciate everything that tennis has given them. It's given them a wide circle of friends, but it has given them a resilience that I don't think you can just tell your kids to have. They, ha it ha they have to experience it. Very good. And I think on that patch, it's, and this is my big thing. I'm, I'm very passionate about tennis and lots of sides of tennis, but I'm also very passionate about how amazing tennis is and, yeah. and, and how I think there is a bit of an underpinning of, of, of cynicism with a lot of people that are involved in tennis and tennis parents. And, and, and actually, everyone has this kind of messy middle bit <laughs> yeah, it's tough and it's hard to it's hard to see through through the trees at that point because it's like well, well why we're we doing this what what's going on but but i i do really believe those that commit to the journey and they commit to the the ebbs and the flows and the ups and the downs and the challenges and the all of those things like i look back i hated tennis at 16 i hated it yeah. i was crying yeah. i was a bishop abbey crying like nearly every day you know, I thought I was like the worst human being in the world, the worst tennis player in the world. thought everyone was laughing at me. I really, I genuinely yeah. did. And here I am yeah. 25 years later 
I, I work 16 hours a day in the sport and, and just am completely obsessed and, and love it. And, and I guess my message to those listening and parents, parents, players, coaches, if you do keep committing, you do keep doing the right things, you get through that messy middle bit, you know, and, yeah. and, and I would imagine you're coming through that now and, and being able to watch your daughters compete in US college, see the lifestyle that they've got, they're going to come away with a, a degrees. They're going to come away with networks, friends for life. And then if they want to play on the Pro Tour, they can play on the Pro Tour. But if yeah. not, what an experience that they're getting. So that must be quite nice now, I would imagine, watching them. and see, Do you get over there to watch them play in America? Well, we did. We did get yeah. over there. But obviously, you know, it's, at the moment, we're not able to get over there. And obviously, season got cancelled last year. But, um, you know, so, but I agree with you, that messy, that messy bit in the middle where you're questioning whether you should do this, what is it, is it the right thing? You know, I, I guess in some ways it was slightly, I want to put inverted commas, getting into US college is not easy. Um, there's a lot of hoops in terms of the academics that you need to get right to get to even get your tennis to the right standard yeah. to, to be able to get there. But you're right. It, once you get out of that side of things, you know, things become much more enjoyable. You know, you they're also much more mature. They're much more able to like rationale you know, what's going on. They're able to handle the losses a little bit better. And yeah, I, and I would have been very sad had we pulled the plug at, like you said, when you were really struggling at 16, I could have seen us doing that as well with the girls. If they'd have turned around and said they don't want to do it anymore, going to be, yeah, great, brilliant. We're going off on holiday and having a normal time. We're going to live normally. Yeah. I could have seen that as well, but to this day, I'm, I'm so thankful that both of them decided to push on and, and keep going with it and, and come out because it is, you know, it's a sport that you can travel with. You know, it's 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 transportable. It's, it, it opens up an immediate so, social circle when you go into any new country. Um, it's a sport that people still still genuinely love talking about. Um, and it and as you say, it, it teaches you so many amazing things. Um, and those those lessons, even for us, you know, even. It teaches, even though I've been through some pretty dark times with my own mentality about how I've seen things, um, I think tennis has always taught me that there is another day. The sun will come up the next day and you can get better. You may get worse for a while, but you can get better. And it is within your power to try and get better. Um, and, you know, because eventually there's not somebody at the other end of the court that's impacting you as well. Then it becomes about you. And if you do have that kind of character that's been built out of tennis, you can kind of fix the rest of the issues that are going on. Petch, it's a it's a great way to end before we move into our quick fire round. Um, okay, it's absolutely brilliant. It's been a brilliant chat. I've I've loved it. So thank you so much for coming on. No, well, thanks. Privilege to be on. I really appreciate it. You do an amazing job with this podcast. So thank you. Quick fire round. You ready? Okay. The quick fire round was actually the most interesting part of the Justin Gimmel stop. <laughs> oh, just, just, it was supposed to be quick fire. And he starts telling me that he's got emails from the ATP ITF and all sorts of things <laughs> that are going to put them under. And so, uh, so yeah, so this might, this might bring something out, but let's try and keep it okay. quick. I've kept you long enough. Yeah. Your favorite okay. grand slam. Uh, Australia. Injury timeout or not for players? One a match. Five sets or three sets for the men at Grand Five. Slams? Five. Who is going to win the Women's Australian Open 2021? Naomi Osaka. And who is going to win the men's? Dominic Team. Are you a supporter of the PTPA movement? 
No. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Uh, one restroom break, and then any time that you want to go again, if it's a, you have that amount of time to go, whether it's 90 seconds between games or two minutes at the end of the set, and any uh, 10 seconds over, you lose a point. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Oh. Good question. Uh, have you got Esteban Esteban Carrillo. And and have you got the hookup? That's part of the that's part of the, the contract. I can I can try I can try hooking you up. Absolutely. Yes. Brilliant. Uh, Petch, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got a busy evening ahead in your hotel room. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got a I've got a cycle bike that's got my name on it that needs needs pedaling because it hasn't it's it's looked very stationary today. <laughs> go 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 and get that moving or maybe you do a Heather Watson triathlon, whatever you do, yes. but you've you've been an absolute star, Petch. Keep up the great work, keep us informed over there in Australia, keep the tweets coming and and stay in touch. Do. All right, Dan, thanks for having me on. It's been great. Just give me a shout. You got my number now. Yeah, I do. Exactly. It doesn't say, <laughs> it doesn't say Petch LTA with like a bad emoji anymore, you know? Exactly, yeah. Like that. <laughs> like the, the, the middle finger emoji. Top man. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Cheers, Petch. Take care. A big thank you to, to Mark Petchy for giving up his time and coming on the podcast. So many, so many learnings and, and detail to take from, from that chat. And Vicky, a big welcome back. Great, great to have you again. Nice to be back. Thank you. Um, I always say after, the, after you've recorded every episode of the podcast, you always come off saying, oh, that was amazing. That was one of the best. But um, now you've had time to kind of reflect and have a think about it. Did you still think that was one of the most enjoyable chats you've had? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a, if I'm honest, it was a chat that I got completely lost in. And, and I think this is one thing for the listeners to understand. When, when we're having these conversations, uh, I'm genuinely curious and 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 trying to trying to find out more for myself and I guess the way that I've always thought is if I'm thinking it then probably the listener is as well and and I think for for me with Mark that the impressive thing having the conversation and I really hope this comes through in the podcast is the layers of conversation that he got into you know it wasn't just headline stuff it was going into layers and understanding how one decision links to, to numerous consequences. You know, he talked about that in terms of the Australian decision around quarantine and around the players saying that and the, the knock-on effect that that then has on Novak Djokovic coming out and making a statement and then him having to to, to really kind of bat against the media. And and there's so many consequences that come from that and, and I think that came through loud and clear. And I think the other thing that came through loud and clear that I liked about it. Mark was a player to a very high level. He's been a coach to a very high level. He's been a tennis parent to players that are playing to a very high level. And he's also a tennis commentator that's commentated to a high level. So he's he's seeing the sport from so many so many different angles that I really thought his information was very enriching actually. I, I, I really took a lot from it. 
What was interesting for me, like, like you see, he's done all these things. I would say he's had an amazing, amazingly successful career in tennis through playing, coaching, um, commentating. And yet um, he mentioned several times throughout the podcast about how um, he doubted himself when he didn't feel um, like he did as well there or he, he didn't feel he was good enough to be commentating to the levels, uh, level that he has. Um, I think we could, we all feel that. I think that's a common a, a common thing for for all of us to feel those feelings of self doubt. But interesting to hear from him when I would look at him as like, wow, he's so successful, he's doing so well, he seems so confident. So yeah, I found I found that really interesting. Yeah, and so insightful. I think I think we're all guilty of comparing and and looking at other people and perceiving them to be more successful than us you know, to perceiving them to be more confident than us. And, and I think the reality is that we are all riddled with self-doubt in, in certain situations, you know, and I thought it was it was very good of Mark to let us in on that. And, and But I would also say that's one of the things I think that comes across through his commentary through the podcast is then the humility that he showed. And, and I would say the humility that he showed and also the way that he, he talked about that, I would imagine that's also been a driving force into him staying on it every single day in the roles that he's in. You know, I, I had experience of being a player when he was head of men's tennis. And that was nice as well to, to, to hear his thoughts on that because I guess when I was a player, you probably just got your head up your backside when you're a player. You're not really seeing the bigger picture. Uh, I really liked his points around, and Dave Samuel said the same on the podcast. Dan Evans has said the same on the podcast that funding should be do, done through competition, you know, as it is done in Spain, in Italy, in these countries. And that's something Mark's been beating that drum for 20 years. And then the other one was around competition for 10 and 14 year olds, you know, and I think. The, the takeaway for me on that was around not not playing too many strategic tournaments. You know, I don't think he was saying don't compete, but he was saying once people get involved in strategically playing tournament schedules at that age, you're now in the rat race <laughs> and, and then tennis becomes very difficult. And I thought I thought that was a lovely insight and lovely learning as well. And you know, for us as tennis parents of a now 10-year-old, maybe one that we can take on board as well. You know, when I was listening to him saying about how when he was head of men's tennis, he spent most of the time on the phone talking to players about funding. And it reminded me of when um, you were playing. And I remember, distinctly remember, you going, oh, it, it's Mark, it's Petch on the phone. And we were waiting on a decision to see if you'd had funding. I can't remember how much it was for, what it was for, but I remember you came off the phone really relieved and yeah, a, a big weight off both of our shoulders because he'd approved some funding for your tennis. And yeah, listening to his perspective on it, I mean, on an individual um, basis, like for you at that point in your career, that funding was huge. That um, enabled you to play for months. Um, but as a broader kind of plan for British tennis, yeah, I think absolutely the funding going into tournaments is so much more beneficial. It enabled me to take you out for dinner and to the <laughs> cinema that night. I'm sure that that was the case. No, I mean, yeah, no, he we was. Definitely, we definitely weren't <laughs> affording dinner and the cinema on the same night. <laughs> no, that, no, that's for sure. No, I think he did a good job. And then, and then again, I mean, Andy Murray, much talked about on this podcast, much talked about in British tennis and in, in world tennis. And I think... 
to get his insight into working with Andy at at quite a pivotal part of his career. I do remember that well. Uh, Let's not forget, he took him from 3-5-1 in the world to 45 in the world. And and, and I think that the really interesting standout for me on that was his opinion and, and why the relationship broke down was down to a difference of opinion but but Mark Petchy's opinion was quite quite strong, just like Ivan Lendl's was a few years later on Andy Murray's game. But obviously, who's Mark Petchy r- relative to who Ivan Lendl is? Andy wasn't ready to take that message at that time. And fair play for, for Mark staying true to himself. I think a, a lot of coaches aren't in the position always to stay true to themselves. But it would be something that I would absolutely say to every coach listening have your own values, have your own beliefs. And yes, you've got to sometimes concede, but but don't concede to your values and your beliefs. And, and, and it seems to me like Mark's done that throughout his career as well. And that was it was great to get that level of insight around the legend that is Andy Murray as well. Yeah, I think it's a great episode for um, people in within British tennis and yeah, true tennis fans. It's just a really interesting chat you had. Um, we've actually got a few, uh, quite a few... Um, messages from people who've listened to the episode with the Skupski brothers. Liz Curran wrote on Twitter, um, what a great insight into the world of doubles and Kevin and Neil's journeys. I'm thrilled they're both back together and I'm very excited to follow their progress this year. Me too, Liz. I'm really excited to see them back on court together. You've had quite a few LSU um, people get in touch as well, haven't you? Yeah, so many people. I mean, I think, you know, that one's really, you know, got to the emotion of people. You know, I think people can see you know how lovely it was that they're playing together for the right reasons they're playing together because they they want to be brothers that are going on the tour and having success together and and they like spending time together you know and I think I think that came across clearly and and actually yeah in the downloads I think that one was downloaded more times in 24 hours than almost any other podcast that we've had and 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 I know that we're still getting thousands of downloads from previous episodes all the way back to Johnny Murray and Freddie Nielsen, the first ever one that we did. And we're, it's great, you know, you put your social media and you get messages pop up. You know, Emily Webley-Smith podcast was being celebrated today. You know, that that was shared, her fantastic messages. You know, and to know that that resource is there for people to just keep dipping in and out of, you know, go back, make make the way through it whenever they want to do is is really lovely about the podcast world. And I know it's something I do on other podcasts myself. And we've got a few more days um, with the players at the Australian Open being stuck in their bedrooms. <laughs> Who are we hoping to have a chat to in the next few days? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's one of those. It's hard to give to say too many names in case they don't come on. I've been guilty of doing that in the past, but um, we do have... You know, this week, not in Australia, but we've got Holger Rune coming on this week, who's the the world junior number one, has been for two or three years. A really strong, interesting character. is going to be a superstar of the game. So that one's going to be a great one to look forward to. Um, we've got Heather Watson's coach, Alex Ward, who was also a, a very good player himself. He, We are speaking to him before he comes out of quarantine in two or three days' time. And I'm in talks with Tom Hill, young British coach who coaches Maria Sakari. And I'm really hoping we might get both of them on. Um, so I can't promise that right now. But yeah, that, that's happening. And yeah, lots, lots more, lots more to look forward to. And yeah, we'll keep we'll keep our promise to you guys. We'll keep trying to get the best possible guests that we can 
on. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. You hear it on every podcast that you're listening to. Ratings and reviews make a big, big difference. So please, if you can, just give all we ask is one minute of your time on the Apple application. Just drop it in there, five stars, and give us your comment. And we'll read it out next time on the podcast. But until then, I'm Dan Kiernan, my wife, Vicky Kiernan. We are Control the Controllables. <laughs>